Here it is. From deep inside your audio device of choice. Ladies and gentlemen, unintended consequences. They're so nutty. They turn up in such unexpected places. Case in point, Guantanamo Bay. A detainee who was about to be released was on the uh, out of his cell on a uh, about to board a cargo plane carrying him and two other former captives to new lives when he decided he would rather not leave. He would rather go back to his cell. Mohammed Boazir, 35 years old, feared going to the country that offered him sanctuary. It has not been publicly identified, according to the Miami Herald. And he waffled in the weeks leading up to what was to be his departure after 15 years of detention without charge, don't you know? Worst of the worst. He had gone through out-processing in about a week's segregation with the two other captives about to be released, was shackled at the ankles, wrists, and waists, Waist. He only had one waist. At the bottom of the ramp of the aircraft, according to an Army colonel, the captive made it clear that, quote, I do not want to leave. I want to go back to my cell. Unquote. The colonel quoting the captive. So that's what we did, said the colonel. It was disappointing. He was disappointed that he had to take the captive back to his cell. Boisier is one of 91 prisoners at the detention center. In years past, others... Among Guantanamo's almost 800 captives have rejected offers of third country sanctuary, subsequently have left voluntarily. None have been known to make it that far through health checks, would-be host country, and international Red Cross exit interviews all the way to the ramp of a cargo plane. He wasn't angry. He wasn't acting out. He was very calm, said the colonel. Boisir's lawyer actually was the source of the name of the captive. He is a native Yemeni. He feared going to a country where he had no family, knew no one, had no roots, no network. These were remarks echoed by prison staff in interviews this week. It was a, a, to be a new life in southern Europe, a country not to be identified. The lawyer said he understood Boisir only wanted to go to family in Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, or Indonesia. There he has a mother, brother, brothers, uncles, and aunts. The State Department's special envoy for the closure of Guantanamo says episodes like this would not impede his efforts to empty the detention center. Lee Wolowski says he foresees scenarios in which a captive could be forced onto a plane and sent to another country. Quote, we're not a travel agency. We're not here to fulfill every wish and desire of a resettlee, he said to the Miami Herald. They do not get to pick and choose where they go. Unquote. So why, why would a, yeah, I know, no family, no friends. Why would a prisoner, a former detainee at Guantanamo, choose to stay. Quote, he had concerns along the way and vacillated back and forth, said a Navy doctor, a captain who specializes in family medicine. Departing detainees can experience, quote, anxiety of the unknown, not knowing whether they'll see family members or not, after what he termed a, quote, very stable, very steady, very consistent detention center experience where the captors make life decisions 
for the captives. Experts consulted by the Miami Herald described it more like a sense of helplessness. Well, guess what, ladies and gentlemen? Guess what the two psychologists, Mitchell and Jepson, who reverse-engineered the Army's S-E-R-E training, SEER training, for U.S. Army personnel during the Korean War to prepare them for possible torture at the hands of the Chinese. Guess what Mitchell and Jepson engineered into the techniques, enhanced and unenhanced, designed for the detainees at Guantanamo. They described it themselves in two words, learned helplessness. You make the choice. You want to go back to your cell? Excellent. Hello, welcome to the show. From the edge of America, from the home of the homeless, I'm Harry Shearer, welcoming you to this edition of the show. And now, ladies and gentlemen, we're not number one. Guns, vehicle crashes, and drug overdoses help explain a big part of why Americans die on average much younger 
at much younger ages than people in other countries. According to government researchers this week, they looked at three very American causes of death, found they go a long way to explaining the gap between U.S. and other rich countries such as Austria and Britain. The three injury case causes accounted for 6% of deaths among U.S. men, 3% among U.S. women, said Andrew Fenelon of the National Center of Health Statistics. They don't dis- explain all the difference between the U.S. and other rich developed countries. They provide the unique perspective on why the U.S. spends so much more than other countries on health care and yet falls right in the middle when it comes to life expectancy. Life, lower life expectancy at birth than many other high-income countries. Much of this life expectancy gap reflects mortality at younger ages where mortality is dominated by injury deaths and many decades of expected life are lost. That's the kind I love. Expected life. U.S. death rates Compared to those in 12 similar high-income countries, Austria, Denmark, Finland, Germany, Italy, Japan, the Netherlands, Norway, Portugal, Spain, and Sweden, and the U.K., men in these countries live on average 2.2 years longer than Americans, 78.6 years versus 76.4 years for men, 83.4 years versus 81.2 years for women. For men, the three injuries accounted for about half that difference, one year of life. The rates were half that for women, but still significant. U.S. life expectancy has been at an all-time high, but has been stagnant for several years. International comparisons show Americans fare worse than other rich countries in rates of infant mortality, injury and homicide rates, drug abuse, obesity and diabetes, heart disease, and lung disease. Americans are seven times more likely to be murdered than people in other countries, 20 times more likely to be killed by a gun. Go figure. We're not... Number one. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the Apologies of the Week. Oh, so many apologies this week. Starting with Sharon Osbourne. Yeah, you know Sharon Osbourne. She became famous by being on a TV reality show with uh, her husband, the rocker Ozzy Osbourne. She's now on uh, The View, daytimes on uh, ABC in this country. She uh, apparently took things too far when she made a prison rape joke at the expense of Teresa Teresa Judace. In December, Judace was released from prison following an 11-month sentence for fraud on Monday during an episode of... Oh, sorry, not The View, The Talk... A show very much like The View on another network. Osborne made her feelings toward uh, Teresa clear, going so far as to claim that she would have gotten some, quote, enjoyment had she been raped in prison. But for you defrauding and somewhat of a two-bit con woman, you actually revolt me. These are, this is a quote from Osborne. And the thing is, it's just too so stereotypical that somebody who's a two-bit celebrity goes into prison for whatever reason, comes out, They sell a story. Everybody wants to hear their story. Were you raped, love? God, I hope she wasn't. At least she would have gotten some enjoyment out of it. Unquote. Osborne has since apologized for her throwaway remark, which, since this, was not meant to be hurtful. According to the Daily Mail, Osborne addressed her comment saying, We've had a lot of people that have been on social media online saying I shouldn't have made the comment about rape and the thing that in that context it was used. Really, people who know me know that I never, never mean harm by saying that to people who've been in that situation. It was a throwaway remark, and that's the way it should be taken. Not meant to hurt anybody. So I apologized if I've offended or hurt anybody other than that woman that we were talking about. Two-bit celebrity. Who is Teresa Judice? 
known for starring in The Real Housewives of New Jersey. See? Sharon Osbourne was in a better reality show. She's written three New York Times bestseller cookbooks, was featured on The Celebrity Apprentice, and then she served this sentence for fraud. She's known, according to Wikipedia, for her extravagant lifestyle and highly publicized financial legal troubles. Her husband, Joe, is scheduled to begin his 41-month fraud sentence next month. Nice. Ooh, nice people. Purdue Students for Life, a pro-life student organization that recently came under fire for an anti-abortion campaign perceived as targeting black women, has apologized for the way it conducted its messaging in an open letter. Critics took to social media last week to condemn the flyer and sidewalk chalk awareness campaign that included messages such as, quote, hands up, don't abort, and, quote, the womb, most dangerous place for black kids, as racist and sexist. The student organization denied the allegations and denounced the alligators. No, sorry. And said the group's goal was to highlight how the abortion industry targets minorities, not to shame black women. According to the letter, the group expressed regret for using slogans from the Black Lives Matter movement and the pain that that caused other students and faculty on campus. Members also reaffirmed their commitment to bringing awareness to pro-life causes, including highlighting how abortion has an impact on the black community. But this time, the group promised to include input from African Americans. Quote, when we speak on behalf of the voiceless, the unborn, we can't ask them for input. We can, however, listen to the voices of the black community. Well, you could use you could use ultrasound. What was supposed to be a seven-day cruise from New Jersey to the Bahamas and back came to an early end this week with the massive anthem of the seas back in port. Three days after enduring a wild ride in rough seas, fired up by 125-mile-per-hour winds, the battered Royal Caribbean ship and its 6,000 people aboard docked in Bayonne, New Jersey. Royal Caribbean, facing scrutiny after the ship sailed into a storm in the Atlantic, apologized to passengers in a statement sent shortly before the ship docked, saying, quote, We have to do better. Cruise Line said the storm the ship encountered was much worse than predicted. If we knew that we were going to have those kinds of winds, the winds we actually experienced with the ship, we would not have sailed into that. No, absolutely, we wouldn't have left port, said the spokesperson. Four minor injuries were reported. The ship suffered superficial damage to some public areas. I said public areas. The nightmare did include four hours when the ship was at a 45-degree angle. That's not good. Deadline London Liverpool Football Club's American owners apologized to fans and reversed planned raises in ticket prices this week, insisting they're not greedy. Really? professional sports team owners. The climb down came after thousands of Liverpool stands, uh, fans staged a walkout at the uh, home field stadium during last Saturday's match against Sunderland. Within hours, Liverpool's, owner, Liverpool's owners backed down and accepted the fans' concerns in an open letter. It's been a tumultuous week, said John Henry, Tom Werner, and Mike Gordon, who also own the Boston Red Sox here in the United States. We would like to apologize for the distress caused by our ticket pricing plan for the 2016-2017 season, unquote. The anger was set off by ticket prices for next season being hiked to as high as $112 per ticket. As a result, Liverpool fans chose to leave the seats in the 77th minute of Saturday's game when Liverpool was leading 2 to nothing at the time. It gave up two very late goals in front of thousands of empty seats. Ending in a tie... How unusual for soccer. The mayor of Cleveland, Ohio, and other city officials apologized this week for asking for reimbursement from the family of Tamir Rice, 
for the medical services he received after he was fatally shot by a Cleveland police officer. Tamir's family wasn't buying the apology, calling the incident deeply disturbing. The claim filed in probate court sought $500 for the ambulance ride and treatment provided to Tamir, the 12-year-old boy who was shot by Cleveland police in November 2014 while in possession of a pellet gun. Tamir's family on Wednesday slammed the city's callousness, insensitivity, and poor judgment in sending the bill. Quote, I want to start off again apologizing to the Rice family if this, in fact, has added to any grief or pain they may have, said Mayor Frank Jackson in a news conference. Hello, Cleveland. Detroit's top cop said a police sergeant is under investigation after he apparently posted a photo on social media drawing comparisons between Beyonce's Super Bowl dance troupe and the Ku Klux Klan. The sergeant, who has not been named, posted a meme, not a mime, a meme, showing Beyonce's dancers on the top and hooded Klansmen on the bottom. If that dance troupe on the top is okay for this year's halftime show, then the one at the bottom should be okay for next year, right? The sergeant wrote. The Facebook post pointed to Beyonce's live performance of Formation. Detroit Police Chief James Craig says he received complaints from employees throughout the department about the post. Certainly this does and shouldn't, does not and shouldn't represent our police officers, he said. The uh, sergeant himself later retracted his post and replaced it with uh, an apology, according to local news reports. I apparently ruffled some feathers. My intent was to draw attention to what I felt was a poor decision by the NFL, he wrote. However, the imagery I used may have been in poor taste. For that, I apologized. I could have chosen a better comparison, obviously. My intent was to compare two wrongs. However, I'll never be able to understand the image that the KKK brings to the African-American community and the hatred associated with it, unquote. His Facebook account has since been deleted. Deadline Albuquerque, New Mexico. The New Mexico Activities Association has apologized to the Dulce High School girls basketball team after references, I'm sorry, after referees made players undo their traditional Navajo hair buns over safety concerns. The girls wore these Navajo hair buns called seals at their game in Santa Fe to support an Arizona team that recently made headlines for being told to remove their hair wraps. The NMAA will send a clarification to high school officials across New Mexico. Deadline Marshall, Michigan, the parent of a Marshall Middle School middle school student, says she received an apology from school officials following an incident in which she said her daughter was told by a teacher that the clothes she wore to school could be, quote, distracting to boys. On her Facebook page, parent Brooke Fields said the situation was never about the school dress code, but about the way her daughter was spoken to by the teachers. Teacher, she said, "Look, my do- look, the boys are already staring at you." An apology about the wording used was made after a very successful meeting with the principal, in which the district's dress code policy was discussed. The Survivors Network of Those Abused by Priests, the victims' advocacy group that has long clashed with the Catholic Church over its clergy sexual abuse scandal, is not accepting the Roman Catholic Diocese of Springfield's apology. This would be Springfield, Massachusetts, not the one you're thinking of. In a pastoral letter released on Ash Wednesday, the Most Reverend Mitchell Rosansky 
sought to welcome Catholics distanced from or disillusioned with the church back into the fold. The letter included a direct apology for the diocese's role in the sexual abuse scandal, which led to more than $12 million in settlements to dozens of victims. First and foremost, I apologize to the victims of clergy sexual abuse, their families and friends, and all those scandalized by the church's failure to protect our young people and for any lack of diligence in responding, Rosansky wrote. Springfield's bishop in issuing, is issuing an apology when he should be protecting kids, wrote the president of the society, or sorry, the survivors network of those abused by priests. Uh, allegations of sexual abuse in Springfield stretched to the top of the diocese. Former Bishop Thomas Dupre, who oversaw the first round of discipline against abusive priests when the scandal broke in the early 2000s, was himself accused of child molestation in 2004. Dupre resigned from the diocese and was criminally indicted those charges were later dropped. Statute of limitations. Less than a week after former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright implied there's a special place in hell for young women voters who aren't backing Hillary Clinton in 2016, she apologized for the remarks in a New York Times op-ed. Quote, I have spent much of my career as a diplomat. It is an occupation in which words and context matter a great deal. So one might assume I know better than to tell a large number of women to go to hell, Albright said in their column. Albright wrote that while she absolutely believes women should help one another, she used the oft-repeated line in the wrong context and the wrong time. No mention of Hillary Clinton's support for Governor Cuomo in the New York State primary against a female candidate. How did that happen? A number of Facebook's board of a member of Facebook's board of directors has apologized for attacking anti-colonialism when he waded into the fierce debate over access to the internet in India. Mark Andreessen, who founded Netscape, was defending Facebook's free basics plan, a controversial scheme to offer a free but basic internet service to poor citizens of India. The company argues that free basics, which includes Facebook. Really? Along with Wikipedia, the BBC, and local news and weather sites would open up the Internet to those who couldn't necessarily afford it. Indians opposed to the scheme argues that it violates the principle of net neutrality, say it would forever favor some Internet services over others, ultimately benefiting Facebook rather than consumers. Andreessen said in a post, a tweet, anti-colonialism has been economically catastrophic for the Indian people for decades. Why stop now? He has since deleted the tweet. Many Indians saw the remark as defending colonial rule and compared Facebook to the East India Company. Andreessen, who co-founded Netscape, as I say, and sits on the board of eBay, has apologized and deleted his original tweet. I apologize for any offense caused by my earlier tweet about Indian history and politics. I admire India and the Indian people enormously. He tweeted he was opposed to colonialism in any country and said he would no longer comment on Indian economics, and politics. The airline that prevented designer and actor Waris Aluwalia from boarding a plane has publicly apologized. Aeromexico refused to allow the well-known Sikh American aboard his flight home to New York from Mexico City after asking him to remove his turban, according to Aluwalia. He had offered to remove his turban in a private screening room. That was denied by the airline. He was told to book another flight. Aluwali was scheduled to appear at New York Fashion Week. He'll be staying in Mexico until the airline takes appropriate measures to accommodate his civil rights, he said. The Sikh coalition, which has been handling all press for him, posted demands for a public apology from the airline. 
The airline responded with a statement apologizing. Aeromexico is a global airline that has operations in countries around the world, which recognizes and is proud of the diversity of its passengers. Every day we work to ensure strict compliance with the highest safety standards while we respect and value the culture and beliefs of our customers. We apologize to Mr. Aluwalia for the bad experience he had with one of our security elements in addressing your flight to New York in the Mexico City International Airport. This case motivates us to ensure that security personnel strengthen its care protocols. Wow, there's some PR language there. Aluwalia told NBC News while he thanked Aero Mexico for the apology, it is only the first step of a larger conversation. That's what we need, ladies and gentlemen, larger conversations. Governor Jack Markell has signed a resolution apologizing for Delaware's role in slavery and wrongs committed against black people during the Jim Crow era. He also helped unveil an exhibit commemorating the 125th anniversary of an historically black university. The resolution apologizing for slavery is a symbolic measure aimed at promoting reconciliation and healing. It states that it is the legislature's intent that it not be used in or the the basis of any litigation. Nice touch. Legislatures in eight other states have also apologized for their roles in slavery. Where's the rest of you guys? More states than eight in this in the Confederate thing, wasn't it? Were slave states? I don't know. It was a compromise. The apologies of the week, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. And now, news of Nice Corp. Nice people doing nice things. This is uh, by way of catching some of you folks up. I know some of you. I, I I've experienced per- firsthand the fact that some of you aren't aware that this whole affair has been going on, but. Rupert Murdoch will marry Jerry Hall, former model, former kind of wife to Mick Jagger, at St. Bride's Church um, in Rupert's old stomping ground of Fleet Street in London. The 84-year-old owner of Nice Corp. is set to marry Hall on a Saturday in early March. Get your gifts now. The church he chose describes itself as the spiritual home of the media, in case You haven't had enough ironic quotes in your verbal diet this week. This is his fourth marriage. Comes after a five-month courtship with the 59-year-old former model. Their engagement was announced in the Times newspaper about a month ago. His first two marriages took place in Australia. His third to Wendy Dang was held on a yacht moored off Manhattan in 1999. Well, that is romantic. Anytime you can be moored off Manhattan. This is Hall's first marriage. The uh, one with Jagger was declared invalid, even though the couple couple were together for 22 years. The couple's former partners are not expected to attend the wedding. Murdoch's six children and Hall's four are all expected to do so. The Murdoch family is known to be close. Other guests will include his senior executives, including Rebecca Brooks, who had to resign when uh, the phone hacking scandal closed down the News of the World newspaper and uh, other officials. David Cameron, British Prime Minister, might be there. What could be nicer than the marriage of the head of Nice Corp to the former squeeze of Mick Jagger? Congratulations, everyone. Well, they call me the honky-tonk fogey. This geyser's getting ready to blow I'm lighting up a major stogie 
From Southern California, this is Le Show. And now, ladies and gentlemen. News of the Olympic Movement. Produced by Jim Ebersole Jr. Who still doesn't exist. The Australian team's medical director says water quality will be more of a threat to the health of athletes and officials at the Olympics in Rio de Janeiro than the Zika virus. Dr. David Hughes says cases of pregnancy aside, easy for you to say, Doc, the Zika virus usually results in a mild infection. 80% of those infected often do not get serious symptoms. Although, as you know, Zika is suspected of causing microcephaly. Look it up. In a telephone interview with the Associated Press, Hughes said the polluted waters of Guanabara Bay and aquatic venues for other Olympic events in August were another matter when it comes to the threat of illness. If someone gets a nasty gastro infection, vomiting and diarrhea, it's not ideal for competing in an Olympic environment, he said. Testing of Guanabara Bay conducted by the AP over the last year shows disease-causing viruses linked to human sewage at levels well above what would be considered alarming in the U.S. or Europe. Tests include the venue for sailing, also Rio's Olympic venues for rowing, canoeing, open water swimming, and triathlon. Rio poses a multitude of medical challenges when it comes to keeping our athletes and officials safe, said Hughes. We're aware of water quality issues. We have protocols in place to minimize the risk, but you can't make the risk zero. You never can. Speaking of which, U.S. star goalkeeper Hope Solo says she has concerns about competing in the Olympics because of the Zika virus. If I had to make the choice today, I wouldn't go to the Olympics, she said. I would never take the risk of having an unhealthy child, she said. Competing in the Olympics should be a safe environment for every athlete. Female athletes should not be forced to make a decision that could sacrifice the health of a child. The U.S. Olympic Committee said it hasn't advised athletes to consider competing, to reconsider competing because of Zika. But maybe there'll be no hope. Or hope will be solo. The uh, Olympic Committee said, according to Reuters, athletes should consider not going to Rio. The message was delivered in a conference call involving U.S. OC officials and leaders of U.S. US sports federations in late January. According to two people who participated in the call, federations were told that no one should go to Brazil if they don't feel comfortable going. Bottom line, said the president and board chairman of USA Fencing. And Kenya threatened to pull its elite runners and other athletes out of the Rio Olympics unless it got assurances they would not be exposed to the Zika virus outbreak. Obviously, we're not going to risk taking Kenyans there. If the Zika virus reaches epidemic levels, they have to assure us the country is safe enough to take athletes there, the head of Kenya's Olympics committee told Reuters. Kenya was expected to be one of the star performers at Rio, fielding some of the best middle and long-distance runners in the world. The East African nation topped the medals table at the 2015 World Championships. However, there's another cloud over Kenya's participation. Allegations that the anti-doping regime in Kenya's athletics program is not up to snuff. Blame the virus! The Olympics, ladies and gentlemen, it's a movement. It's a movement away from uh, Brazil at the moment. But it is still a movement, and we all need one. Every day!
And now, ladies and gentlemen, to the camp, the presidential campaign. Uh, the, the focus has shifted, as you know, to South Carolina, a uh, very conservative state for the Republicans and a very uh, heavily African-American voting populace for the Democratic primary. Hence, um, Bernie Sanders meeting with Al Sharpton this week. Uh, on the Republican side, Jeb Bush, who didn't do that well in New Hampshire either, is calling in the big guns. He already uh, had Barbara Bush appear for him in New Hampshire. Now he has turned to his brother, the former president, George W. Bush. Uh, you may know that Jeb Bush has tried to separate himself a bit from the 43rd president had said publicly that he disagreed with the decision to begin the Iraq war. But now, former President Bush will be coming to uh, South Carolina, South Carolina, where he's still popular. Imagine that. And um, he's told the Washington Post, or, or Washington Post has reported, he, that uh, George W. Bush is bewildered by the... Um, dominance of Donald Trump at the campaign. Can you believe what's going? He says, according to a longtime friend. And uh, among the services George W. Bush will perform for his younger brother, Jeb, he's uh, expected to cut a radio commercial endorsing his brother. Yeah. I guess I can read these notes. Probably should have brought my specs, not just my photo op glasses. Uh, Mr. President? Yeah. Yeah, is that you, Brad? Uh, yes, sir. I'm in the control room. Yeah. But I'm still in control. I'm the decider and the controller. <laughs> yes, sir. Uh, you comfortable now? Well, we're we're long in corporate bonds, which may not be throwing off enough cash flow. Sir, for... are, are you comfortable in the studio? <laughs> oh, Sure. Can't quite see it. This this microphone in the way. Uh, oh, sir, sir, probably best not to move it. That's uh, that's how we hear your voice. <laughs> right. I, you know, I'm so used to those uh, little mics on your uh, on your suit. What do you call them? The lavatoire mics. Yes, sir. Uh, this one uh, needs you right up on it. All right, my friend. Uh, I'll do a little presidential scooching here. This good? That's, that's great. Now, yeah. uh, you know what. Uh, you kind of what you're going to say? Yeah, well, sir, Laura and I worked on uh, some notes last night while we were watching the debate. Jeez, can you believe that Trump guy? <laughs> I know, sir. <laughs> Claims to be a Christian man and swears like a drunken salesman. Well, probably the least. You is. know, about the second session I had with him, Carl Rove told me to stop waving my arms so much while I speechificate. This guy in his speeches, he looks like he keeps trying to get a 747 in the landing gate, doesn't he? Uh, yes, sir. Yeah, I don't get it. <laughs> of course, all this has just got to be sticking in Jeb's craw. Having his older brother have to come help him out like this. Well, I th I, I think he appreciates it very much, sir. That's what his people have told me, that he's uh, very, very grateful to you. Well, I know, but down in the underconscious, this has got to be just roasting his cashews something fierce. I just think we need to get started here. We only have the studio until... Tell you something. Tell you something. Laura said to him at a dinner early on, you know, she says, you can't run away from the family name. And it's not an explanation mark. Uh, point. Excuse me? Point. 
okay, but I thought this was a radio spot. Exclamation point. I gotcha. Yeah, well, you know, us Bush fellas are a pretty stubborn lot. <laughs> yes, sir. My dad would still be jumping out of planes if the doctor hadn't have forbidden it. If but... we uh, could maybe get a, <coughs> get a take, sir. Well, you roll whatever you're going to roll, and I'll roll right behind you. Okay, we are rolling any time. <clears throat> this is George W. Bush, and I'd like to talk to you for a minute about my brother Jeb. You know, Jeb's not his real name, it's his nickname, and that's the kind of guy he is. Everybody calls him by his nickname. Do you think anybody calls Donald Trump by his nickname? You think he even has one? Tell you what. Sir? Fella doesn't have a nickname. You know, there's got to be something wrong with him. Sir, I, I think the nickname thing is probably not the most useful way to uh, spend our 30 seconds, sir. <sighs> okay. I would just get to the character stuff, not have to fall into the policy area where I know Jeb doesn't want me to go all that much because of uh, because of the thing. Yes, sir. I think we can avoid the thing and still be a little more substantive with, uh, you know, with... With the substance. I got you. Okay. Let's try her again. Anytime. <laughs> well, now would be good. We're, we're rolling. <clears throat> This former president, George W. Bush, you know, the one who ordered the thing. Oh, shoot. It was on my mind when we started up, so. Well, let's just do another one right away. <clears throat> this is George W. Bush. You know, no one knows a brother like another brother. Because we're like brothers. Sir, if I may, that, that sounds like you're, uh, you know. Uh... Uh, trying to target black people? <laughs> <laughs> well, I wouldn't put it exactly that way. But... Okay, okay, got it. Here we go. Rolling? Never stopped rolling. Oh, that's what I like. That can't-not-can-do attitude. See, that's where Dick Cheney went off the rails with me. The minute I didn't pardon Scooter Libby, the changester just sat in my office and sulked, wouldn't leave, just sat there like a like a, a bump on a... What's the thing a bump sits on? Sir, we're rolling. <laughs> Hello, this is George W. Bush. You know, I wasn't ever the one who was supposed to succeed our dad in the White House. It's true. Jeb was the one. Well, sir, I kind of got ahead of him in line, and the rest was ancient histrionics. But now it's his turn. Sir? I'm cooking here. His turn to keep America strong against the evildoers of this world and the next. Sir? His turn to make sure every child is... Not the one left behind. S -s Sir, the, the his turn thing really does go against the request of the Bush campaign not to... Uh... Not to do the his turn thing? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that uh, it kind of slipped under my train of thought. Well, uh, how about we take a five-minute break and uh, then give it another try? Fine. I'll see if I can read my notes here. Good.
Ladies and gentlemen, how about our old friend Formaldehyde, a national retailer in the, in the United States of America, sold Chinese-made flooring. The Chinese are killing us. Chinese-made flooring that emits hazardous levels of formaldehyde, according to a federal investigation. Now they tell us the laminate flooring was sold by lumber liquidators, Tom. Lumber liquidators? Yeah, that's right. Until last May. Last May. Right. When the company announced it was halting sales, a long-awaited federal safety review found the flooring gave off enough formaldehyde gas to irritate the eyes, nose, and throat of many people. I guess many other people like the formaldehyde. There was also enough gas from the product to trigger breathing problems in people with certain health conditions like asthma. The formaldehyde also increased cancer risks by a small amount. U.S. officials released the analysis this week. The Consumer Product Safety Commission, which oversaw the testing, is continuing its investigation, hasn't announced any penalties related to the findings. The company did not dispute the findings. Yeah, we we got the formaldehyde, but we are very different. And now, ladies and gentlemen, news from outside the bubble. At least two-thirds of the global population of the Earth, that's over four billion people, live with severe water scarcity for at least one month every year. So that's according to a major new analysis. The revelation shows water shortages, one of the most dangerous challenges the world faces, is far worse than previously thought. The new research reveals that 500 million people live in places where water consumption is double the amount replenished by rain, I blame the rain for the entire year, leaving them extremely vulnerable as underground aquifers run down or are polluted by us. Many of those living with fragile water, fragile water resources are in India and China. Other regions highlighted are the central and western United States. That's us. Australia. And even the city of London. That's us, too. These water problems are set to worsen, according to the researchers, as population growth and increasing water use, particularly through eating meat... There's water and meat continues to rise. In January, water crises were rated as one of the three greatest risks of harm to people and economies in the next decade by the World Economic Forum in Davos, alongside climate change and the World Economic Forum itself. No, uh, mass migration. If you look at environmental problems, water scarcity is certainly the top problem, says a researcher from the University of Twente in the Netherlands. Will the research one place where it is very, very acute is in Yemen. Yemen could run out of water within a few years, so let's bomb them some more. No, we're not doing it. The Saudis are doing it, and they're just our friends. But many other places are living on borrowed time as aquifers are continuously depleted, including Pakistan, Iran, Mexico, and Saudi Arabia. The researcher also highlights the Murray-Darling Basin in Australia and the Midwest of the U.S. There you have the huge Ogallala Aquifer, Tom. The Ogallala Aquifer. Mm Mm-hmm which is being depleted. He said even rich cities like London were living unsustainably. You don't have the water in the surrounding area to sustain the water flows to London in the long term. The study was published in the journal Science Advances, the first to examine global water scarcity on a monthly basis. It analyzed data from 1996 and 2005 and found severe water scarcity affected 4 billion people for at least one month a year. The results suggest the Global water situation is much worse than suggested by previous studies. According to the researchers, 
The work showed 1.8 billion people suffer severe water scarcity for at least half of every year. So waste some water today, won't you? News from outside the bubble, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast, and finally on the broadcast today, news of the godly. Pope Francis' Sex Abuse Commission is stressing that its sole purpose is to propose initiatives for the Roman Catholic Church to protect children from pedophiles. This after it effectively suspended a member who advocated a more activist role. In a statement this week, the commission cited its founding documentation in saying its specific task is to provide the Pope with proposals to protect children and help local churches take responsibility for the problem. The commission had told Peter Saunders, a British survivor of abuse, to take a leave of absence. He had been criticizing the slow pace of progress and was pushing to have the commission intervene immediately in individual cases rather than just craft long-term policies to fight abuse. The commission didn't mention Saunders in its Monday statement. It issued a conclusion of its week-long meeting. Instead, it reported on progress to date, including finalizing a request for Francis to issue a reminder to church authorities that they must actually listen to victims who come forward. And it said it was planning workshops this year on bringing greater transparency to church trials for priests accused of raping and molesting children. Workshops, ladies and gentlemen. Don't you like workshops? News of the Godly, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Ladies and gentlemen, that concludes this week's edition of the show. The program returns next week at the same time over these same stations over NPR Worldwide throughout Europe, the USN 440 cable system in Japan, around the world through the facilities of the American Forces Network up and down the east coast of North America via the shortwave giant WBCQ, the planet, 7.490 megahertz shortwave on the mighty 104 in Berlin, on Soho Radio in London, around the world via the Internet. Still, Facebook hasn't swallowed it yet. Two different locations on the Internet, harryshearer.com and kcsn.org. Available for your smartphone through stitcher.com and available as a free FREE podcast at Sideshow Network SoundCloud, iTunes, tunein.com, and WWNO.org. And it would be just like you clapping if you'd agree to join with me then. Would you already? Thank you very much, huh? Please clap. You tell him, Jeb.
Tippett Lashosh Chapeau to the San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago, in exile on Hawaii desks. Thanks, as always, to Pam Halstead and to Jenny Lawson of WWNO New Orleans for help with today's broadcast. The email address for this program, a playlist of the music heard here on, and your opportunity. Think of it as an opportunity to get Karzai T-shirts for your entire family, your entire neighborhood. Why stop there? Is at harryshearer.com. And me? I'm still standing at Twitter at the Harry Shearer. It's really not that hard to use. I don't even believe in it, but happy Valentine's Day. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans' flagship station of the Change is Easy Radio Network. So long from the home of the homeless.